I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that I'm really enjoying at the moment. Disorder is a weekly podcast from Goalhanger, the makers of The Rest is Politics and The Rest is History. It's tackling the really big questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And how do seemingly disparate challenges from AI to climate change, to wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, to tax havens, to unregulated cyberspace, how do they all interact with each other and feed into our era of global enduring disorder? It's a really good listen, and I also hope to be appearing on the podcast myself in the next few weeks. So check out the link in the show notes to follow the podcast immediately. It's like a dog that chases a bus, you know, and then one day it catches the bus, it just runs headlong into that. What the hell do we do now? And that, that's pretty much what Quasi Quateng's autumn statement turned out to be, the, the sound of a dog actually catching up with a bus. And and they can't step back from it. How can they when they've spent decades, as I said earlier, putting all this into, into space, all this into place? They can't possibly, uh, re, re, you know, resile from it because it's their entire raison d'etre. James O'Brien is often described as the voice of liberal England. With his regular radio slot on LBC and his huge online following, he's a reminder that popular doesn't have to be populism. His patient, forensic, but totally accessible unpicking of cynical political dishonesty, particularly of the Brexit variety, has been a beacon of sanity for literally millions of people. And that's at a time when so many other media outlets, even the BBC, no longer seem prepared to call out deliberately misleading public messaging, or what we might just call lies. O'Brien sometimes feels like a lone voice of reason, and that points to a profound change in our society. Politicians have always tried to avoid answering difficult questions and portray their own actions as virtuous and ingenious. But the kind of dishonesty characterised by Boris Johnson, coupled with the refusal to take responsibility for your own actions and failings, perhaps best epitomised by Liz Truss, that feels like a newer phenomenon. And this plays into a wider prospect of a country that now feels broken, its media, its politics and perhaps most importantly its public services all deeply dysfunctional. The roots and causes of that malaise are the subject of James O'Brien's new book, How They Broke Britain. In the excellent and lengthy introduction, he talks of the boiling frog metaphor, a 
and succinctly explains the premise of the book. It is, I quote, the story of slowly boiled water from which an entire country failed to escape. So like anyone who's had to live in that boiling water, I've been a big admirer of O'Brien's work, both on LBC and on Twitter. And this was particularly the case as his book has a similar theme and title to my own book, How Britain Broke the World. I wouldn't go so far as to suggest their companion volumes, but I was to some extent attempting in my work to look at the effects of Britain's internal politics on the wider world. So it was a huge pleasure and privilege to have James on the podcast. He is, as you'd expect for a consummate radio presenter, an excellent guest, and I really hope you get as much from listening to him as I did from interviewing him. So here's James. James, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you, Arthur. Um, James, your, your book, How They Broke Britain, is all over the uh, sort of bestseller list and the bookshops. I'm sure a lot of your readers, a lot of your followers have a general sense that something's gone badly wrong in this country. But the details of the story are staggering. But the structure of it is basically a series of pen portraits, isn't it? So perhaps you could say a bit about who these characters are and how you pick them. Yes, of course. It, it, it's... It's, it's an attempt to track the ecosystem in which the bad could, bad stuff could happen, rather than simply to detail the bad stuff. But one feeds into the other inevitably and constantly. So my thesis, um, which sounds a bit pompous, is that three major engines of, of transformation had rendered the country ripe for all manner of indignities, uh, you know, including up to and including Boris Johnson, Brexit, Liz Truss, Suella Braverman, both individuals and events. And those three engines of transformation are the right-wing media, the right-wing print media, really, uh, most most obviously sort of Murdoch and the Mail, but the Telegraph in, in recent years has become abominable, really, in many, mm -hmm. well, abominable and ridiculous at the same time. And then the right wing of the Tory party, the sort of um, the successful defenestration of anybody remotely one nation, you know, the, yeah. the David Gorks or the Dominic Greaves. Uh, everyone usually adds Rory Stewart and Anna Subri to that list. And, and I think that's fair. But the way that they have been silenced and the faragification of the party as i yeah. as i like to call it has has run amok effectively to the point where he pops up at conference in the front row of liz truss's exculpatory attempt to disown her own economic policies and are on the dance floor literally bouncing around with with pretty patel and then the third element of it is perhaps the least obvious but arguably the most interesting and that is the proliferation of secretly funded lobby groups masquerading as think tanks who have managed to infiltrate and inform pretty much every level of public discourse in the media political space and latterly to actually get into government to the point yeah. where the uh, one Tory commentator described Liz Truss's Downing Street as being an incubator for the Institute of Economic Affairs, which given how little we know about the Institute of Economic Affairs or how few qualifications you need to rise to a lofty job description within their um, structures, that should have really been a bit of an alarm bell for everybody. Uh, and then when the disastrous consequences of allowing Downing Street to become an incubator for the Institute of Economic Affairs became clear as well. That should have been whatever comes after the alarm bell, you know, that should, that should have been the real... Um, the evacuation. <laughs> the, the, that should have been the evacuation. And, and inevitably, for reasons that I explain, the opposite has happened because this triple uh, whammy, if you like, of influence uh, is so embedded now that they could never either A, admit a mistake or B, undertake some form of reversal. So that then turns into people. And Murdoch, obviously, Paul Dacre at the um, at the Daily Mail, obviously, perhaps a little less obviously Andrew Neil, but it becomes clear why he's there for, for three reasons, really. He was the first editor to normalise and give credibility to these lobby groups, calling themselves think tanks. He represents the way in which the BBC has been caught up in this process, has become unintentionally uh, sort of denuded and, and, and cowed. And he very much represents the toxification of the public space, the way that people have been able to use the spectator's 
tradition of respectability to inject really vile Islamophobia, Nazi apologies and all sorts of uh, disgusting commentary into the into the discourse while looking respectable. So where, what once would have been confined to perhaps the red tops now very much has a broadsheet patina to it. Um, and then the, the politicians, so you've, well, Matthew Elliott, Vote Leave, Stroke Taxpayers Alliance, he becomes the standard bearer for the think tank element of the yeah. conversation, although others pop up in that later. Then the politicians, you've got Nigel Farage, you've got David Cameron, you've got Jeremy Corbyn, because you've got to look at the lines of defence against what has been happening and why they failed so completely. And then you've got Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings. And finally, a gratifyingly short chapter, you've got Liz Truss. Indeed, suitably short. Um, you, you mentioned a bit there about Andrew Neil in particular and his role at The Spectator. And I'm really glad you did that, because I think there's something very troubling about how that magazine um, continues to be seen as a sort of mainstream publication and it's incredibly toxic full of mad mad stuff basically yes. and 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 the way that it that uh, is a pipeline sometimes of disinformation you know sometimes even sort of russian style disinfo um talking about sort of great replacement theory these kinds of things that were once seen as on the on the fringes of our society Yes. I mean, even yesterday, I think Rod Liddell, uh, who was writing this in the Sunday Times, but he's been very much cloaked in the credibility that the Spectator provides. The cross-fertilisation between Andrew Neil's Spectator and his former bosses, Rupert Murdoch's press, is, is, is clear and pretty well chronicled in the book. He was writing that Braverman tends to be approved of in the North and disliked in the South, which simply doesn't stand up to even the vaguest statistical scrutiny. So he, he, he can just write this stuff and um, with with apparent impunity. And then yeah. um, uh, Saeed Avasi has pointed out that, that uh, Douglas Murray, who's another favourite of both Rupert Murdoch and Andrew Neil, uh, describing the first minister of Scotland as the first minister for Gaza and, and, and talking about him having, I, I think the word he used was infiltrated, infiltrated. or some sort of word. Yeah. It was infiltrated. infiltrated. Well, yeah. it's, it's often helpful, particularly in the febrile atmosphere we're inhabiting at the moment, to wonder how that would read if you were talking about uh, a Jewish person as opposed to yeah. a Muslim person. So to claim that a Jewish politician had infiltrated British politics by becoming the you know uh, leader of a democratically elected party of government or to use the, the verb infiltrated, you can see what would happen. But and, and it cuts both ways. The other bit people miss about Neil is that you sort of think, well, it can't be that grim, this stuff, because it's been published in The Spectator and that the chairman of that is that very good interviewer yeah, that, you know that ch cheeky chappy on on the BBC. So not only does the Spectator give a veneer of respectability to deeply uh, unrespectable opinions and and um, commentators, but I think subconsciously the BBC did as well. I think Neil's successful straddling of somehow being able to abide by the impartiality rules while also publishing all this poison made people think, well, perhaps it isn't that poisonous after all, because he's on the BBC at the same time, although, of course, he isn't anymore. Yeah. And the role played by the BBC, in fact, I think is is crucial to your story. It kind of runs like a bit of a, a sort of central cortex. Funnily enough, um, not that it's very important. I became aware of your work in 2015 when you presented a news night about Yemen. And now Yemen's a country I worked in as a diplomat and has remained very close to me ever since. Um, and you were really holding, as I recall, Crispin Blunt um, mm. to account. Um, but of course, people like you aren't very welcome in the BBC anymore. And then you cite the case of this this very young researcher, barely out of out of his university, um, who was kind of pulled apart when all he did was did a bit of fact checking sort of on, on TV. It's an extraordinary illustration uh, uh, because it just points towards a really weaponized double standard. So it's not it's not a, a violin on my own behalf. I, I think it, it because of three historically unique issues, Brexit, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, I was never going to be able to do both jobs. I, I, I was so strongly opinionated about those three issues in my other work yeah. that I couldn't, I don't think, really keep my head under the parapet at the BBC, which is fine. But this 25-year-old fact-checker called Oscar Bentley, who just did his first, one of his earliest shifts on, on the Daily Politics programme, or the whatever it's called now, Politics Live, yeah. and and did a, a fairly straightforward job of explaining why Rishi Sunak shouldn't really be 
claiming that the Tories have halved crime or whatever the claim was, because the figures that he compares, one includes uh, fraud and computer crime and one doesn't. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not comparing apples with apples. He does this daytime television, largely uncontroversial analysis. And the next thing you know, he is in the Daily Express, the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Daily Telegraph, probably a couple of others, being absolutely pilloried. I, I mean, having his credibility called into a specific question because he can't be trusted. And the reason why he can't be trusted, it emerges, is because he won't put a picture of his pet on a Dogs for Jeremy Corbyn Facebook page while he was a, a politically active student at York University. Now, if you want yeah. to subscribe to the idea that that somehow excludes him from suitability for working at the BBC, you have to explain how, and again, I'm not imputing his journalism in any way, but you have to explain how Nick Robinson on the Today programme can have on his CV, chair of the Macclesfield Young Conservatives, chair of the Cheshire Young Conservatives, chair of the Oxford University Conservative Association, and then chair of the actual Young Conservatives, which I think is a sabbatical role, a paid role as, yeah. as part of the party machinery. And and that's what's happened is, is for a variety of reasons. That little illustration there shows that if you were now leaving university and thinking of going to work for the BBC, if you had any political activism for the SNP, for the Labour Party, for the Green Party, for the Liberal Democrats, any of that, uh, in your recent past, any any at all, you would run the very real risk as soon as you uh, achieved any form of prominence at the BBC of being attacked and savaged in the way that Oscar Bentley was. And I think that will put people off joining. And yet, if you have been chair of the Young Conservatives, you've got absolutely nothing to worry about. So you couple that with the arrival of people like Robbie Gibb on the board and their desperate attempts to clip the wings of journalists like Lewis Goodall or, or Emily Maitlis, and, and you get a picture of how very much without doing anything conscious, the BBC has become a place where bias is now uh, entrenched. It, it, it's now almost part of the fabric as a consequence of, of you know, these issues, these two or three separate issues all converging on the same space at the same time. Yeah. And perhaps at the heart of that is is the figure of Rupert Murdoch, who rightly is the first you know, chapter of the book. And um, you go right back to 1981, uh, because that was when um, when basically somehow he managed to avoid the law on sort of monopolies when when he got hold of of the Times newspaper. Perhaps you could sort of talk talk the listeners through that. This is probably I mean, almost everything in the book, with the exception, perhaps, of a couple of interviews. Is, is out there. It's all in plain sight. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a revelatory book. I'm not that kind of journalist. I'm, I, I don't have the, the skills or the, perhaps even the energy. But I don't think it's all been assembled in the same place before. So the best source for this period is, is Harold Evans, uh, the mm. former editor of, the, of, the, of both Times titles, who was in situ when Murdoch set his sights on them. And what happened was the the, the financial situation, it should really have been referred to monopolies and, and, and mergers because of what he already owned, because yeah. of, of having the sun and the news of the world in his pocket already. And after a meeting at Chequers between Thatcher and Murdoch, and Bernard Ingham was there, uh, we know that for reasons that will soon become clear, Thatcher came back to London that weekend and and swapped out the relevant cabinet ministers. She, she moved uh, a, a culture secretary who was considered to be very robust. I think it was John Knott, but you're going to have to check. I delivered the book so late, Arthur, that it doesn't have an index. We didn't have time to put the index in. Hopefully there'll be one in the paperback, but it means not everything is at the, at the tip of my fingertips. And swapped him out for, for a, a Secretary of State who was considered to be a slightly softer touch, who was more likely yeah. to do Margaret Thatcher's bidding. And lo and behold, the new Secretary of State... Uh, decided not to refer it to monopolies and mergers, where the previous one had been expected to do so. And it came out at Leveson that Rupert Murdoch had no memory whatsoever of this meeting, of this trip to Chequers, at, at which point the QC responded... Oh. Yes, of course not. Uh, the QC responded by saying, well, that's odd, because here is your thank you letter, which recently emerged in, in one of those drops of, of cabinet documents that happened sporadically. And, and Bernard Ingham, who then, of course, popped up in... Hillsborough, which I also use as an example of how corrupted newspapers had become and how that then bled into the political establishment. But Bernard Ingham was was um, was all over that story. He was very much the conduit between Thatcher and Murdoch. The Murdoch takeover of, of the print media then paves the way 
for this kind of ideological takeover of of the the wider media space. But the strange irony about this, and and you 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 use this phrase, which I think is really helpful, bogus victimhood, is mm. that right to this day, even when they've been running the country for most of the years of my life. Uh, the Tories still somehow claim that they're the kind of embattled minority. They never get a shout. You know, the Liberals run the media and all the rest of it. Um, how, how do they do that? I, I think because th there's hardly anybody allowed to point out how ridiculous it is. Uh, you know, um, apart from podcasts, my book has had no media coverage at all in the United Kingdom. It's had quite a bit in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, but but uh, you know it's it, it went in at number four in the Sunday Times bestseller chart. Even the even the Sunday Times can't keep me out of the charts. Um, yeah. Just behind Britney Spears and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think. But it, it, you know, it, the, 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 yes, it is not bad. Um, the reason why it, 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 they get away with it is because it goes almost entirely unchallenged, and it doesn't matter what phrase they're using, whether they're using you know, woke mob or politically correct or growth, uh, anti-growth coalition or tofu eating woke karate or rather more sinisterly uh, uh, cultural Marxism or common purpose. They're constantly claiming that there is a, a secret cabal of liberal, metropolitan elite, of liberal people who hold all of the power, even as their own industry, the media, demonstrates that that they don't really hold any. So there's an exercise in that chapter. I think it's in it's either in the introduction or the Murdoch chapter, where I just invite the reader to make a list of people that might fit the description of a liberal, a metropolitan liberal even, yeah. who have a significant media platform. And that can't be Twitter. It has to be the day job. So it has to be a newspaper column or a radio show or a television program on one of these new stations that have managed to maintain very opinionated editorial positions. So you make a list of all of those. So on one side, you've got the people we've mentioned already. You know, you've got Richard Littlejohn, you've got Charles Moore, you've got Nick Timothy, you've got Rod Little, you've got Douglas Murray, you've got Melanie Phillips, you've got everyone really you can think of. And they're popping up on television programs all the time. And now I'll do the same for the Liberals. Yeah. Uh, and you're not allowed... You're not allowed Carol Vorderman and Gary Lineker because they do it as a side hustle. You know, they're, yeah. they're, it's not their day job to do this stuff. And yet Dacre and the rest of them are constantly insisting that that there's some sort of takeover in play. There was a book by a weird bloke called Matthew Goodwin about the new elite. And, and oh, yes. you know, who are the examples? I'm in it. I, I, that's great. I wish someone had told me. I wish I, is there a fee? Is there a, is there a membership perks? Do you get access to VIP? I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And of course, yeah. that, that, that I think that his book, of course, got reviewed absolutely everywhere. So if, there, if there's a conspiracy underway, it looks to me as if it might be the other way around from just the, uh, possible yes yeah. i mean it is incredible again i hope when you see it all written down because i don't think many of us pause for long enough to clock the absurdity of some of these situations because we are being fed an unleavened diet of it in our daily newspapers and then of course broadcast media for good or for ill still very much follows the agenda set by set by the papers. The the cast, the rogues gallery uh, in in your book, it's mostly household names, also depending on the household, I guess. Um, but but <laughs> one or two slightly less well known figures, and and I wanted to talk a bit about Matthew Elliott because, mm. again, you know, people who who've who've educated themselves about Brexit will definitely know that he was he was sort of in charge of vote leave but he's still a quite mysterious figure so can, yeah. let's talk a bit about him what's his backstory do, do, i know i was at the henley literary festival on friday night and the the um interviewer daniel hahn the brilliant translator asked people to put their hands up in the room if they knew who he was and nobody right. did so we're go. possibly being a bit bubble even here ourselves i yeah. thought that, that there'd be more people there because because he's sort of got a triple whammy on his CV. He did the uh, opposition to the alternative vote referendum back in the day, but then he is the founder of the Taxpayers Alliance and yeah. also the, the 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 head of Vote Leave. You know, he he, he him and Cummings were the sort of uh, eminence grease behind Gove and Johnson and um, uh, and the Labour politician whose name eludes me for the moment. The German Gisela Stewart. Gisela Stewart. Yes. Um, and and who is he? You know, yeah. how does he achieve these positions of authority and influence? Uh, the Taxpayers Alliance is another example of a lobby group 
calling itself a think tank and dishing out fancy titles like, you know, director general or head of uh, culture and security or Lord High Panjandrum of all things economic. And, and they pop up everywhere. And, and you don't even notice as a professional, an allegedly professional broadcaster. I'm sure I've been on programmes. Uh, when they've been someone from that outfit on there or someone from the yeah. Institute of Economic Affairs or someone from Civitas or someone from the Adam Smith Institute or someone from uh, the, the, the one today that's done the research into teachers and, and, and not noticed that there's no traditional career path for these people. They've just yeah. set up an organisation, given it an impressive name, given themselves fancy titles, and the next thing you know, they're on question time and writing articles for the not just the, the Mail and the Telegraph, uh, but also increasingly the Times, because yeah. the guy that now edits the Times used to be deputy editor of the Daily Mail, used to be editor of the Sun, and used to be editor of the Daily Telegraph. So the, 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 the influence of discourse is clear. So yeah. what is it that they are seeking to influence? It's essentially the, the, the notion, which you can, this is probably more your field than mine, but you can dress it up as a, as a, as a conflict between sort of Keynesian economics and, and, and Hayek, but it ceased to be that decades ago. It's essentially a desperate attempt to remove as much regulation as you possibly can from the world of business and commerce, and it hinges upon the idea, the ludicrous idea, that the, the less... Uh, checks and balances and regulations that are in place for business, the less obstacles there are to rapacious profiteering, the better it will be for everybody. So, so you end up um, with constant uh, calls for a cut, cut to that regulation or cut to that scrutiny. Don't make the tobacco, don't bring in sugar taxes, don't be hard on tobacco companies. Um, more the IEA, that bit, than the Taxpayers mm. Alliance. They're, they're more into sort of why on earth are we paying for this and this might be something that is designed to reduce racist bullying in the workplace yeah. or it might be something that is due, designed to address simple facts like if you're a black woman in labor then you're much much more likely to have a negative outcome than you are if you're a white one why are we spending money on this so these are my own examples but it's the kind of area that they've moved yeah. into and it's in, it's it's impacted upon every single level of public discourse not just the paid for media that they uh, often contribute to, but as I say, they then pop up all the time on the BBC as if they are somehow the counterbalance to credible and transparent contributors to the public conversation. It's incredible when you see it all written down, culminating, yeah. of course, culminating in Liz Truss's um, administration, which one Tory commentator described as a, become an incubator for the Institute of Economic Affairs. And, and yeah. the, the director general or the pope or whatever he calls himself at the, at the Institute of Economic Affairs replies with a sunglasses emoji as if to say, yep, that's us. We're yeah. those dudes. We're the guys. I, I, I mean, it's incredible, really, and, and still unfolding in plain. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Site. And and with in a way, I mean, Liz Truss is your final chapter, and you know, mm. it's it's not a bad place to stop, albeit albeit you know, <laughs> the story story continues. But, yes, but what what's so extraordinary? It it's back to that old sort of um, you know senior school debate about does communism work? Well, it's never been tried. Yeah. Well, we literally tried, didn't we? You yeah. know, the IEA, yeah. as as they they stated publicly, were running Britain for albeit for forty nine days, yes. and it doesn't seem to have gone very well. No, and, and, you know, not just them, but the Daily Mail 
front page, finally a true Tory budget. The Daily Telegraph comment piece is written by the chap that edits the Sunday paper, Alistair Heath, who said the finest budget of my lifetime, I think he said, or possibly the finest budget since King Herod. I don't know. I, the, the level of hyperbole that they deployed yeah. to greet this uncosted uh, uh, selection of, of, of plans, all cold, almost verbatim from, from the annals of these so-called think tanks, was, was absolutely spectacular, as was the scale of the disaster that ensued. But if you understand how it happened, and Liz Truss, of course, becomes very much a... Uh, culmination rather than an aberration. It's easy to see her as an aberration, but in fact, under this reading, she's very much a culmination, yeah. not an inevitable culmination, because you did need the, the sort of breaches with normality represented by Brexit and Boris Johnson to lay the ground for the final push, which I don't think any of them ever expected to happen, to be honest with you. It's like a dog that chases a bus, you know, yes. and then one day it catches the bus, it just runs headlong into that. What the hell do we do now? And that, that's pretty much what Quasi Quateng's autumn statement turned out to be, the, the sound of a dog actually catching up with a bus. And and they can't step back from it. How can they when they've spent decades, as I said earlier, putting all this into, into space, all this into place? They can't possibly, uh, re, re, you know, resile from it because it's their entire raison d'etre. And what, I mean, I've been surprised at how quickly broadcasters have allowed them all back on. I've been a yeah. little bit surprised at how quickly they're all popping back up again. But, you know, sometimes we overanalyze stuff. And, and I work with young producers who don't have enormous contact books. And there are people up and down Tufton Street, which we use as a figure of speech. They're not all actually on Tufton Street, but, but they're all in the locale. They're, and they've just got the word, yes, what time do you want me there on their on their voicemail message? And so lo and behold, you need someone to come on and, and they'll be up they'll be up in, in, in your studio minutes later. But but what was really interesting, well, what surprised me was the scale of it when you look at it. Not 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 the influencing of discourse, but the number of people from these organizations who just who who of course have achieved their purported prominence simply by being in these organizations, not, not by having published peer-reviewed research or having achieved academic status or having come from the diplomatic corps or any of the traditional paths that you might expect to lead to authority, bestowed authority. They then segued effortlessly into Whitehall itself and the list of people from these lobby groups, all, of course, linked, as Shamir Sani explains in the, in the Matthew Elliott chapter, all in, each, in and out of each other's offices and all meeting up every couple of weeks for a, sort of strategy meetings and plans. Uh, the, the, the list of individuals that then went into Whitehall in senior advisory positions to Liz Truss's government was breathtaking to me, truly breathtaking. Yeah. And, and, you know, with a few exceptions, no one's really been writing about it or talking about it. No, it, it's almost like it's a bad dream and we're hoping that, you know, it, it wasn't never actually happened. Yeah. Um, well, something that I I sort of try to get to the bottom of just in my own understanding is, is I'd be interested in your views is, is what are these people actually trying to achieve? Do they, because some of this stuff it's, they can't possibly believe it. You know, Dominic Cummings can't believe that he was checking his eyesight, you know, when he went on that drive. Um, they, the, the, all the things that people like you were warning about Brexit have basically happened. You know, it's had a terrible effect on our trade. It, it's, re, it's reduced tolerance in our society. It, it, it's had so many baleful impacts, which were obvious and have happened. So all these things seem pretty clear. And yet these groups continue to flourish and grow. So is it is it purely about sort of personal wealth and, and the, the accumulation of it? Or it's something much more complex than that? Or, or neither or both. I, I mean, that that is the big question for me that, that still is hanging over the, the, the end of the book. I think the thing about the dog and the bus is, is more interesting than I fully appreciated while writing it, because I think that they see themselves as pushing back against something. Yeah. And and they never expected the thing they're pushing back against to fall over. They never expected to rush headlong into actual power. They may have thought that they wanted that, but I don't think they'd ever really planned for it. So it was an attempt to constantly resist what Jacob Rees-Mogg calls regulation, what you and I might call health and safety legislation or, or minimum wage provision or, or attempts to make workplaces happier, healthier, 
locales or, or, or social mobility or, or you know, uh, obstacles to rapacious profiteering because you should be reinvesting in research and development or paying your staff more or making sure that, you know, things like sticking substandard or inappropriate cladding on the side of high-rise blocks of flats would, wouldn't happen because of the regulations that were in place and were being properly policed. So they're against all that sort of thing in the, in the, in, in the short term and the long term. They just sort of think that, and the tax, of course, why am I paying so much? Why can't I keep more of what I've got? Why can't I be even richer? Why can't I make more money? Why can't I keep more money? Why can't I have more money? And they have managed to cast the state as the great enemy of that ambition they are the great enemy of that that aspiration so i think that's part of it psychologically and and ideologically cummings is a probably not the best example i mean except in terms of being prepared to lie quite blatantly down the barrel mm. of the world's television cameras cummings sees it all as a means to an end yeah the rest of them i think don't they don't know where the means ends and the end begins cummings yeah. genuinely believed that if he could burn everything down he would build something better. Yeah. He genuinely believes that. And if you look at the cast list, with the exception of Corbyn, who I think probably is guilty of some of the vanity that the others are guilty of, but Cummings is not in it for himself. He's not, he's not looking for a peerage or a payoff, or, or he hasn't even published any memoirs. He's, he, he genuinely thought, in my view, mistakenly, but he genuinely thought that he was the best-placed human being in the history of these islands to rebuild a new Jerusalem in his own image that would be more efficient, more effective, more everything, or you name it. it would, and that's, that, that animated him. And it explains everything about him. It explains why he wouldn't think twice about lying, because yeah. the end goal is so much more important than a you know a pissy little COVID fine. Christ, I'm here to build a new nation. And yeah. it explains why he 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 would get into bed with someone as obviously dissolute and delinquent as Boris Johnson, because he felt that he would be, with some justification, I think, he felt that he would be essentially he'd have his hand up. Boris Johnson's back and he'd be controlling everything that Boris Johnson said and did. And if it wasn't for COVID, he might he might have done, or he certainly yeah. probably would have done so for longer than he managed. Yeah, COVID and, and Carrie, maybe, the sort of uh, twin. Priscilla yes. um, and Charybdis that did for Dominic. <laughs> yeah, but, and it's interesting. I mean, you look at Cummings and, and he is that classic Leninist. I mean, any means is worth the end. And, and yes. I mean, I'm sure you saw, you know, his recent uh, suggestions for how we'd solve the small boats issue, which was a start a war with France. And uh, it yes. probably yes. could solve that issue. But obviously there'll be other there will be other factors to consider. Yes. Um I want to talk a bit about uh, Jeremy Corbyn because he, in a way he is the odd one out. Obviously, ideologically from a completely different place. Um, but I suppose, you know, a lot of people, even those who, who fundamentally uh, lost all patience with him, would would argue that he comes from uh, he, he's he's acting from a fairly sort of, uh, you know, well-meaning position yes. and, and, and so on. I mean, did, did you end up thinking that or did you think that actually there was something a rather more kind of uh, self-interested going on there? I, I think more than anyone else in the book, he is tossed by the waves. Yeah. around him rather than plotting his own course and and mm -hmm. whether that comes across as a, as a as a criticism or a compliment probably depends upon how you feel mm -hmm. about Jeremy Corbyn so what interests me and I, and I try and answer questions throughout the book and and the, the the question of how he could become leader is really interesting and not fully understood yeah. you know the old theory about a butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon jungle. If Eric Joyce, the former MP for there Falkirk, hadn't started drunkenly swinging at various Tories in the House of Commons bar a few years ago, Jeremy Corbyn would not be or would never have been the the, the leader of the Labour Party. So yeah. I think that's well worth exploring. Um, and, and also the, the role that John Landsman played and the uh, almost irrelevant nature of Jeremy Corbyn to the plans of people like Landsman and, mm. and Seamus Milne. He became very much a vehicle into which they could pour all of their ambitions and hopes. And and in 2017, it looked, you know, as if the, 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 the dream might come true, the, the, the dream that the hard left has always had of getting its hands on power, which had been in hibernation pretty much since Dennis Healy beat Tony Benn to the deputy leadership of the party back in the day. But yeah. but, they, but I wanted to explain 2017 as well. That wasn't about, uh, uh, you, you know, a recognition of Jeremy Corbyn's messianic qualities. It was largely about people utterly bamboozled 
by the state of British politics, who had a fairly strong conviction that Brexit was a bloody stupid idea and couldn't vote for anybody else. So yeah. Theresa May calls the election from a position of great weakness that, that Nick Timothy mm -hmm. thought was strength and inevitably gets sort of hoist by this this Brexit hangover. But that was not going to last indefinitely. It, it, unfortunately, that's the point at which I think Corbyn believed his own hype. That, that's yeah. when he drank his own Kool-Aid and thought that it was a vote of confidence in his peculiar set of skills. And, and that, that explains why the country in 2019 was left with a choice between the unconscionable and the unelectable. And, yeah. you know, doing what I do every day on the radio, I know, I knew, I know why people weren't going to vote for Jeremy mm. Corbyn. And, and it, 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 I mean, it was all of the reasons that we've heard a million times before. But I did also think it was worth looking at the so-called scam element. There's still a constituency on social media who like to claim that the allegations levelled at Jeremy Corbyn about either indulging in or being comfortable with anti-Semitism were some sort of scam, yeah. which again is, 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 you know, a bit Brexity in the same way that there is a brilliant Brexit. It just goes to a different school. So Jeremy Corbyn would have been a, a great prime minister if it wasn't for those pesky scammers. And and yeah. I, I like to look at the, the the history of his, you know, having IRA people round for tea on the terrace of the House of Commons, writing a foreword for a virulently anti-Semitic book, appearing, you know, putting even in the very early days of his leadership, uh, it emerging that he'd offered support to a, a, a graffiti artist whose horribly and obviously anti-Semitic mural was being yeah. taken down, and his defence was, oh, I didn't actually look at the mural when I offered up support. It's just an utter unsuitability for high mm. office. And if you're in the ecosystem the rest of the book describes and you're the leader of the Labour Party, you, you, you need to be conscious. You can't just stick your fingers in your ears, close your eyes and refuse to speak to anybody that doesn't tickle your toes. He goes on Channel 4 News with Krishna Guru Murthy and, and has a hissy fit, you know, very early on in his leadership. Yeah. You saw it recently, actually, with Piers Morgan when he was just asked whether or not he... he um, He's asked about Hamas, a very yeah. simple, straightforward question about Hamas. And, and yeah. he just leaves himself so open to looking weak and dangerous. And, and that is not his fault because he was always like that. It's the mm -hmm. fault of the people that put him in the spotlight and thought that um, we somehow wouldn't notice or he'd change or it didn't matter. Of course it mattered. And of course it wasn't a bloody scam. But some people, I suspect the people who need that lesson are, are, are still a long way from being in a position where they'll be able to learn it. Yeah, sadly. Um, yes, very sadly. <laughs> the a book like this, uh, obviously, you you know how they broke Britain. That there could have been, uh, you know, quite a long potential sort of applicants for this position. Were there ones that you wanted to get in that that you weren't able to? No, there weren't. And and I think the best way to understand that is the difference between symptom and cause. Yeah. So there are a hell of a lot of symptoms that don't get their own chapter. You know, yeah. I focus in the introduction on two politicians who I felt best illustrated how low the bar had been brought to achieve one of the high offices of state. So Johnson's obvious yeah. on that. But I felt that Dominic Raab and Suella Braverman were so uh, such unutterably awful politicians and quite mm. possibly people as well. But I only know their public persona. I just felt they were so unutterably awful that looking at how they got where they got to and what they did when they got there would be very illustrative of the broader malaise, but they haven't contributed to the ecosystem that allows them to become foreign secretary or home secretary or deputy prime minister. They're beneficiaries of the corruption rather than architects of it. And yeah. you put Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Dorries hmm. into the same boat, I think. I mean, absolutely and objectively absurd that they could rise to cabinet level in any government at all, let alone any serious government. So, hmm. I mean, somewhat to my relief, actually, because it's a nice round number, the 10 chapter headings, the 10 candidates um, presented themselves very quickly, very clearly. And there isn't really a, a, a long list of also rans or, or near misses. The introduction was a problem because it, at one point I thought it was never going to end. Yeah. I was still I was still writing in the middle of August and it was in bookshops by the beginning of November, which is why, among other things, there's no index in there and mm. a few more typos than I would have liked. But the 
the fact that they kept doing stuff, you know. So yes. Rob, Rob resigns when I'm halfway through the introduction. Braverman tells a Holocaust survivor, no, thank you very much. I'm not going to moderate the language I use about refugees, even though you've just told me it reminds you of the language the Nazis used um, before they killed your family. So all of these appalling and egregious and normally exceptional examples of, of how bad everything is, how broken everything has become just kept mounting up and just every day there'd be a the day I delivered the book another one happened you know Dory's resigning and then not going anywhere for two months it was just endless the proof yeah. that, that things we used to take for granted like the simple relationship between action and consequences or um or the, the fact if you got caught out being a bully in the home office then you'd get fired if the prime mm. minister's independent advisor had concluded that's what you'd done you wouldn't have a prime minister sending a whatsapp message to everybody saying let's form a square around the prince it just never ended so in the end yep. the publisher the publisher just said just stop writing the introduction now james <laughs> um and start writing the, the the book proper otherwise you're never going to start on the chapters you're going to be constantly writing and here and here it's tuesday and here's more proof of how messed up everything is so yep. so no the introduction was the bit that could have run away with itself not the actual chapter not heading. The yeah mm. well the introduction is to my mind it's a brilliant standalone essay on the kind of the parlor state of Thank modern you. Britain. Which yeah, I hope so. Um, just in the sort of final bit of this, I obviously my own interests are very much sort of international affairs. Yes. But but one of the things that uh, strikes me about what what you've you've sort of documented here uh, is that of course it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're speaking on the day that this guy Javier Millet has been elected in Argentina. He basically combines a sort of IEA economics yes. with Donald Trump attitude to telling the truth, which is a you know pretty scary combo. Uh, and then you've got Trump, you've got uh, cynical populists all over the world. It, I wouldn't you it's you can't say that there's a constantly rising tide because of course electoral politics doesn't work like that, but there's a lot of it about. Um, how much was that kind of international aspect of it sort of present in 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 your book? Because I mean one of the characters of course, Matthew Elliott, conservative friends of Russia, possibly linked with Russia's intelligence agency. There are those sorts of aspects of this story, aren't there? Well, de destabilizing. If you look at it, I mean, to, to answer your question simply, not that much, apart from Trump, who I just think mm -hmm. is emblematic of an awful lot of the themes in, in this book. And you can see most obviously, I suppose, Steve Bannon's thing about flooding the zone with shit is, is yep. kind of, I think Boris Johnson does that by nature, not by yep. design, but it has yep. the same consequence. It means you can't mm. pin down or focus upon the latest sackable offence or the latest career-ending behaviour because there's so many of them and therefore the career... The career never ends, but but it, the notion of destabilize populism as a destabilizing force is yeah. increasingly interesting to me today. Events in Argentina overnight, adding to it Bolsonaro, and and you know, I understand why people are wary of seeing Putin's fingerprints on everything. But if it was 2015, and you were offering the Russian leader quite a lot of the stuff that has happened since in the simple context of political or democratic stability in uh, in the Americas and Europe, he'd probably bite your arm off. Um, whether, or, whether or not he has contributed to it, I, I think is highly likely. Um, I think the, the, the St. Petersburg troll farms and a lot of the seeding yep. of discourse on social media probably is, is yet to come out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the notion of the bad stuff happening when the boring, reliable stuff has been broken is, is constantly in the back of my mind, whether I'm on the radio or whether I'm writing. Uh, that, that, that is when the bad stuff happens, when people are persuaded that institutions and, and individuals dedicated to protecting them or at least advancing their interests are actually damaging them and and opposing their interests. And you see that everywhere from, from Brexit to Argentina. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, James, I can't say how much I got from the book, and I know that everybody listening should go and read it. And not least because, uh, you know, we may not live in, in this way forever, you know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The, the, the current government is way behind in the polls, but it's, it seems to me that some of these things are structural. And even if we have a much more respectable group of people running our country, the Murdoch media will still be there. There'll be a lot of other structural factors that we'll have to kind of keep keep our eyes on. Yes, although I'm more optimistic than I thought I would be when I started writing it. And oddly, I, I find myself thinking of Amber Rudd quite often uh, mm. while I've been promoting the book because it, it's not that long ago that she resigned twice on, on classic points of principle. She, she yeah. resigned as Home Secretary because she inadvertently misled the House about somebody else's mistake, really. Mm -hmm. And then think about what Boris Johnson did when he quite deliberately and explicitly and consciously misled the House. So that the, 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 the speed of that decline, the timeline of that decline was short. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, she resigned as Business Secretary not long afterwards because she could not countenance what Cummings and Johnson were doing to the party. She didn't just yeah. resign as business secretary, she resigned the whip as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's a reason why some of those sayings and, and, and some of those figures of speech become timeless. And, and all it takes is for good people to do the right thing, to keep the really bad stuff at bay, or, or at least to, to give it proper pause and to give it proper obstacles to negotiate. And it's only four or five years ago that Amber Rudd was doing those things. So there's no reason why we couldn't get back to a place where imperfect, fallible, loads of room for improvement, but not actually broken in its very core, not, not actually Owen Patterson territory, where someone gets caught breaking the rules and the governing party the, and, and their friends in the media, they close ranks, not just to get him off the hook for rule breaking, but also to set fire to the entire rule book. These are not normal events. They're not normal events in any country, really, any, any ostensibly stable country. But they're certainly not normal events in Britain, in the United Kingdom. And yet they look normal at the moment, which is why it's helpful to remember what was normal not that long ago. A resignation on the grounds of individual ministerial responsibility, I guess, and a resignation months later on the grounds of observable truth and simple principle so so I, I you know if we can fall this quickly maybe we can rise up again almost as fast well i think that's a fantastic and unexpectedly optimistic <laughs> note which we finish thanks so much for talking to me today it's been a pleasure thank you Arthur. thanks for listening to this episode of behind the lines with arthur snell if you want to make sure you never miss another episode, why not subscribe right now wherever you get your podcasts? And if you've enjoyed it, give us a positive review. It makes a huge difference in driving new listeners to this show. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the theme music is by Matty Benbrook. <laughs>